To answer is human. To question is divine. Welcome to the world of the Hidden Gateway, an exhilarating podcast exploring the concepts humans have been struggling with since the dawn of existence, such as, who are we? Is there such a thing as good and evil, or are they arbitrary constructs? Does the paranormal exist? How can we evolve to a higher state? Can our mind influence what we term as reality? Providing a transcendental approach combined with hard-nosed humanistic analysis, we invite you on a journey to question your worldview in this theater of life. Join our host, Justin Williams, as he explores the outer realms of faith, the supernatural, human potential, and even our concepts of the universal creator with a fascinating array of guests. This is the unseen world, magical, mysterious, and mystical, where your only limitation is your imagination. This is The Hidden Gateway. Hello, welcome back to another episode of The Hidden Gateway Podcast. As always, I am your host, Justin Williams, and today we welcome Mr. Matthew Dunn to the show. Matthew was talent spotted for Britain's Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, while at university. And after undergoing a rigorous and protracting selection process, he underwent extensive training in all aspects of field officer espionage before being appointed to an operational team. He then spent many years traveling the world solo under numerous aliases, targeting the highest echelons of rogue states. Since leaving service, Matthew has been a best-selling author of 14 spy thrillers in the Spy Catcher and Ben Sign series. He's hard work on his 15th novel, and he also imparts his passion for creative output to aspiring authors. He runs in-person masterclass courses on how to write a novel and runs mentoring programs remote or in-person for aspiring authors. Matthew, welcome to the Hidden Gateway Podcast. How you doing? I'm very well, and thank you very much for that uh, very flattering introduction. I'm very grateful. Oh, of course, you're welcome. You have had a phenomenal career, both in service and out of service. You're doing some amazing things, and I'm really excited to have you on the show today. So, you know, I want to know, I usually start off asking guests, how did you specifically get into MI6? What was your path, your journey, per se, to lead you to becoming a a spy? I have to say, Justin, it was it was an absolute bizarre experience because I joined in the mid nineteen nineties, and at the time, without getting too bogged down in detail, but at the time, uh, MI six, uh, our equivalent of uh, your CIA, mm-hmm. um, it had only recently become uh, what's called publicly avowed, meaning that it was just formally stated that it exists, even though it had existed for about um, a, a good. Uh, 80 years um, previously. So um, when I joined, it was still very much in the shadows. And, and uh, I was um, talent spotted at university, as you've mentioned. And it was um, an odd experience in as much as um, started out with a professor at my university in the second year of my university who just started asking very sort of gently, what do, what do I want to do um, when I leave university? And I said, well, something in foreign service sounds quite interesting. And the conversation really picked up from there. And uh, 
then it really um, took about almost a year and a half of him and I just chatting about stuff until finally it got to the moment where he said, look, I've got some friends, some people that I know in London, and uh, it might be interesting for you to have a chat with them. By this stage, I kind of knew what was going on, and he also mm. knew, I think, that I knew that you know, yeah. that the game went on, really. So I, I, I played along with that and went down to London and uh, met some people in some very, very salubrious uh, um, buildings in, in central London. And uh, almost their opening gambit was, the question was, uh, do you know who you're talking to? And uh, hmm. my response was very direct. I said, yes, you're the Secret Intelligence Service, MI6. And they said, that is correct. So we can now proceed, you know, with each other knowing exactly what we're talking about. And so after that, it was then through the whole system. I had to go through um, all the different tests, all the interviews, a very, very rigorous pro um, program probably one of the hardest jobs to get into, I think, in the world, really, in terms yeah. of what they do. And then on top of that, even once I got an, a job offer, then I had to go through the um, security vetting, which, as you would expect, we have different levels, exactly the same in the States, I imagine. And this is the very highest in, in Britain. It's called developed vetting. Um, and uh, it takes an age. I mean, it, it mine took something like eight to nine months. It can take a year plus, and they, they go and interview everyone. Find out your deepest, darkest secrets, everything about yeah. your past. And um, of course, my, my my offer of employment was subject to passing that vesting because if I hadn't passed, there's no way I'd have been through the front door. Right. A very long um, process. Um, and so much so that I, I do think if, you know, people do ask me, or, you know, what do I think about them applying to MI6? And I, I do have to pause and say, look, you do realize that the chances of getting in are almost non-existent. And yeah. also the time it takes is ridiculous. Things have changed now, though, because uh, one can apply openly to MI6's open application process, but very different and very bizarre in my day. Wow. Very different. Very bizarre. Very good. Okay. Well, that's a great story, man. That's like a Hollywood, <laughs> Hollywood story. That's something else. So here you are, this 20 something year old college kid, you get approached by a professor and you didn't know initially, but you said you eventually found out what it was all about. Like, what was your mindset like during that time? I'd imagine <clears throat> being in your early twenties is such an exciting time. And you kind of probably were you obviously very curious and you maybe thinking about what lied ahead for your future career in, in my six, right? Yeah, it was, it was a, an interesting uh, thought process uh, because um, I didn't know what I was going into. Um, obviously the, the time I en entered was after the, the cold war collapse of the Soviet union and everything. And uh, mm. there was so uh, such little information about MI6, apart from the stuff we all know in fiction and the, the movies and the literature. Right. But apart from that, there was no very little um, comment on it. And there was a large part of me that did worry, or wonder at least, look, is there going to be much to do? Am I, am I going to be sat at a desk well, shuffling papers and just dealing with, you know, little bits and bobs, trivial stuff or whatever? So I really went in there um, on that level very blind. There was, however, I must be very honest, um, in equal measure, if not greater measure, um, a great sense of intrigue. I felt that I was joining, um, you know, the world's most exclusive club. Right, um, right. You know, and uh, <laughs> so it was almost the chase itself of just getting into that exclusive club. Had a, I, I'm guessing, you know, early early twenties kind of thing. Had a certain um, sort of allure to it all. Um, right. And it, in fact, it wasn't until I was fully um, 
figuratively through the front door um, on my the first day of my six month training pro- program, which is what they put new entrants through. It's a very rigorous process, um, and it's only it was only then when they um, they brought in speakers and opened the books about what they were doing and past cases and all of that that um, I actually realised, my goodness me, um, this is probably more than you know I'd hoped for. It was uh, a complete wow. eye eye opener. Excellent, excellent, very cool. So they they. They came after you, right? Like, what type of person did they recruit? What what character traits? What was it? What do you figure it was about you for them to want to bring you on board? I've always wanted to know that. Well, yeah, but I was going to sort of turn the question around to you because if if you know the answer, just please tell me because even to this day, <laughs> even to this day, I'm not entirely sure. In oh, fact, okay. there was a period um, later on in my career. Um, I remember speaking to um, an operation officer, somebody like me, a um, frontline operation officer, who was back in London and had been um, posted to be head of recruitment. Um, somebody who'd been out there, you know, done the job and now was recruiting the next batch of spies. And I remember just having a, a drink with him and saying, look, um, out of interest, what is it that you look for in us guys? And he, even he couldn't properly answer. He was saying, look, obviously we have to go through all the tick box exercise, all the different tests that we have to take and interviews and all the other stuff that we have to do to, to get in. He said, but even then, over and above that, it almost comes down to we're just simply looking for a, a very particular breed of animal. And sometimes it is nothing more than simply when, when that person walks into a room you look at them and you think that's the person. Um, so a very difficult, in other words, a very difficult thing to actually quantify. And in later years now, my, from my position now, armchair, former spy, um, I still <laughs> do dwell on it. I still do think, well, you know, what is it that makes a great spy? Well, you know, what are the traits? Are they things that can somehow be, if you like, bottled and quantified, measured, etc.? And I still don't have an answer to that, to be honest with you. Mm, okay. Okay. Now, so you're a spy, early 20s, probably mid-20s at this point. And I can only imagine the possible challenges of balancing the need for secrecy and the importance of maintaining personal relationships. I mean, you couldn't go around and say, hey, I'm, a, I'm in my six, right? How challenging was that? How did you, how did you deal with that? It wasn't... Um too challenging um in mi6 we we um most operational officers myself included um have diplomatic cover so i i would just simply tell people that i was a member of the foreign and commonwealth office which is our diplomatic call um Mm. and and i would have documentation to support that and and it was to a large extent legitimate because that was my cover department all official so I would tell people I was a diplomat, and that would explain trips abroad, for example, um, okay. an, an interest in foreign affairs <clears throat> and all the rest of it. Um, so it was relatively easy on that level to maintain. Um, but, of course, the um, the mind flip, if you like, was I always knew that I was lying to people you know, nearest and dearest, um, including uh, my parents at the time. Um, so it was... Uh, a very, very odd one. And uh, I do remember, as, as a just brief anecdote, um, bumping into my mother in London purely randomly. And then she, she wasn't living in London, but she was up on a, a conference that, um, for the day. 
And uh, she said, oh, we must meet for lunch. And why don't we meet for lunch um, near to where you work? I mean, diplomatic corps. And uh, it was very shortly after I joined MI6. And I said, yes, okay. And uh, MI6, you may know, is not exactly central London. It's just on the south bank of the River Thames. So that central bit of London, where the, the, the real diplomatic corps was, was at the time completely unknown to me. And I met my mother and uh, she, we were walking around trying to find somewhere to eat. And at one point she said, well, I thought you knew this area of London and I had to sort of bluff. And it was only later on in a year or so later that I had to explain that, that actually I, I had no idea about that part of London because I didn't, <laughs> because I, because I didn't work there. You know, so. Wow. Wow. That's, that's very interesting. Very, very interesting. I can only imagine, man, you, uh, Oof. So obviously you, you went undercover, you done a ton of undercover work traveling the world. And uh, so what was your focus while associated with MI6? Yeah, my, my focus was um, specifically on the highest echelons of rogue states, um, rogue states. Now, I, I have to be careful with naming the states, but to be honest with you, it's the usual um, suspects, but the ones that potentially can cause most damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, globally. <clears throat> and uh, my role within that, and again, I'm choosing my words carefully here, but my, my role within that was to um, obtain secrets on those states, um, secrets about their actions and their intentions, hmm. um, and to do that a variety of different ways, um, including um, obviously operating in the relevant territories, um, um, recruiting what we call in Britain agents, I believe in the States you call them assets, foreign uh, individuals who have access to the secrets that we need, and direct action as well, where, where applicable. And um, that's what I did um, for many, many years, um, as you've referenced, primarily operating alone. And it's one thing that's worth pointing out, that it's, it is a very different experience compared to, the, for example, the movies where you see spies wandering around with satellite coverage and the ability yeah. to call back up and uh, suddenly let's activate such and such team in Berlin or something like that. And suddenly right. the cavalry <laughs> arrives and such. Uh, that was never the reality of it. So I was okay. operating alone. And the deal was um, a very explicit deal um, that if I got caught, I was completely on my own. Um, no safety net whatsoever. Really? Um, that's, that's fine. I, I, I was eyes wide open to that, uh, that uh, situation. Why? Why? Why is that? Why no backup? No. Why no safety net? Why did, were you put in a position if you got caught, you were completely on your own? Is that just to protect the agency and what? The, oh, yeah, the not missions? just the agency, but uh, protect um, Great Britain. I mean, it was Britain, um, yeah. so. I, I was. Um, I could not be a state um, representative, even even as okay. a spy. Um, so spies do have different covers, um, notably, obviously, diplomatic when they operate abroad. Um, for the majority of my career, um, I operated um, under a very different cover. Um, so I would be, for example, a businessman or something like that, and um, or academic or other, whatever the cover re- required. And um, so that meant that if I was uh, arrested uh, for whatever reason, um, then um, I couldn't pull diplomatic cover card or anything else like that. And if I tried to get support from the British government, they would have to treat me as if I was just any Brit overseas, you know, caught up in some kind of problem. Um, So, um, you know, it it was, I was very aware of all that. It wasn't underhand in terms of the setup of that, but it did mean that I was, um, you know, I was aware that if I got caught, then 
you know, as a spy in somebody else's country doing all sorts of spy stuff, then it would have been life in prison for me, or far worse. So it's almost as if MI6 viewed you not only as an asset, but somewhat of a liability as well then, and a liability that if you were to get caught up, hey, hands off, no rescue, no nothing to to help you out. Like you said, possible life in prison. I even heard you say on one show that it could be in some countries possible execution as well. Yeah, well, and, I mean, uh, it sounds very grandiose, but, you know, to throw that in, it's, it, but unfortunately it's a fixed reality. <clears throat> and... um my my focus or my sort of area of concern within that sphere wasn't um, really about me so much. It was more for the, the foreign the foreign nationals that I work with my okay. my agents, the people that I'd recruited. Um, because for me, um, I mean, I felt such um, over overwhelmingly sort of I felt so protective of them because yeah. after all, I was asking them to risk their lives to um, betray their country. Um, and, of course, you know, in doing so, it wouldn't necessarily be just their lives. It could be the lives of their family, extended family, out of retribution, punishment, etc. So that was my bigger concern in terms of compromise would be, you know, any individuals that were in some way helping me um, do the job I was doing, far less so than concern about my own skin, so to speak. Um Maybe that came later, but at the time, it just really wasn't uh, my focus. To your point about um, MI6 and its view of me, and certainly not view me as a, a liability because, um, okay. on, on the contrary, I mean, the amount of training and, and investment they made in people like me, not just me, but you know, people like me, right. was huge. Um, right. So, I mean, they would obviously want everything done to, um, you know, if I'd got uh, compromised to protect me. But at the end of the day, we're all grown-ups here. And, you know, if they had to walk away and say, okay, for the greater good, we can't do anything, then that's what they would do. But they wouldn't do it with, um, you know, any degree of, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, you know, amusement or anything else like that. It, for them, it would be a, an absolute tragedy if something like that Yeah, happened. I'm sure. No. I'm sure. Wow. My goodness. And then I heard you say as well that you had 14 different identities i mean matthew how did you juggle that right traveling the world <laughs> I, I imagine you would travel what anywhere from 60 to 80 percent of the year if, yeah if no actually more. you're right i mean at one point i did actually calculate it and it was actually close to 80 percent not all the time but but on average between about 60 to 70 percent of the time I was traveling and, and in terms of traveling it wouldn't just be to the target as we call them the target um, states that I was looking at or target individuals because I would go where the work would take me. Um, so um, if you pick one of the usual suspect rogue states that uh, I, I very crypt cryptically reference, um, I wouldn't necessarily be just going to those places. I could be going to Hong Kong. I could be going to Bermuda. I could be going to Chile or wherever it would be mm -hmm. um, because that's where I had to meet somebody or do something or whatever. Um, so doing all of that, and as you say, with with different aliases, how I did dealt with that um, is it is worth um, just softening that um, accurate statement. However, with a, with one thing, which is that I when I went into alias, that's solely who I was for the duration, for example, of that trip. I wouldn't be flip flopping between lots of different aliases during one trip, for example. Um, or very rarely would I switch on occasion, but very rarely. So um, even before leaving somewhere like London, 
um, which was a typical launch pad, um, you know, I would get into role. I would get into character. I would become that person. I would immerse myself, even in, down to their thought pr- um, process, their mannerisms, everything. So that by the time I was getting onto a plane or whatever, you know, I really was in my mind that person. And I would be that person throughout, you know, days, weeks, months, whatever it would be. Um, so I found myself um, very able to get into that role. I suppose much like an actor does, get you know, in a movie or, or getting on stage or something. For that moment, they are that person. Only difference being, of course, that you know, actor can take his or her costume off after the performance. But I'd be living that role for quite a long time. So, um, and of course, the jeopardy attached to it. Did you ever, by chance, uh, say you were undercover in in one country? And then you go to another country and see someone that you had met under a different, <laughs> different cover. No, it, it never, it never happened to me. Um, but of course, it's a nightmare scenario, isn't it? Um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, to avoid, well, we people like me would uh, try our very best to avoid that situation. So we, uh-huh. would, we would try to sort of monitor people we knew, assets, agents that we were running, all that. It's like mo- moving pieces on a chessboard, essentially, and trying to think, okay, if, if I've got to fly to this place, I'm reasonably sure it's unlikely I'm going to bump into somebody, but of course I can't be certain. But um, through either through good luck or whatever, it never happened to me. But if it did, I um, there's various little things one can do to um, to get out of the situation and try to and explain away a different name. Um, so. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> tricks of the trade etc yeah i bet the training was world class it had to be i I could only imagine some of the things you learned and even some of the technology you were exposed to uh and and speaking of of technology let's let's talk about some of the things that that we see happening in in today's world right let's talk about cyber threats so in addition to the well-known cyber threats faced by the u.s and the uk how does traditional intelligence which has been around much longer adapt and combat these new cyber challenges are there emerging threats such as those related to AI that people may not be fully aware of and but maybe should be concerned about? Yeah, it's, it's worth um, um, just clarifying in terms of my focus, MI6, um, exactly the same as the CIA for that matter, was what we call human, human intelligence. Um, and as the name suggests, we're, we're really looking to get secrets um, from within people's heads essentially secrets that are kept locked up inside uh, people's brains um so um people like me were not um necessarily tasked with um cyber um attacks with the exception of if we knew somebody that had access to somewhere that a facility or something like that then somebody like me would actually try to recruit that individual but it was a very human driven process to the broader point, though, um, about the secret world and, you know, is it evolving? Is it changing? Are the threats um, um, you know, dramatically shifting more towards, um, you know, digital threats, if you like? Um, it's a mixed bag as to what's going on, certainly in terms of the threat from from cyber attacks, deliberate, mm-hmm. hostile orchestrated cyber attacks we're not talking about you know sort of low-level crime here we're talking about hostile intelligence agencies systematically and very expertly using their expertise to um, attack the the national security fabric of for example the united states or the united kingdom now um, that has obviously increased but it was always there 
Um, in the UK, we have our signals intelligence agency, GCHQ. Um, you obviously have NSA. Um, they work um, very um, closely together, and, and they have always been very attuned to the threat from from cyber. Um, but it is also worth um, stating that um, it is still very much business as usual um, when it comes to the biggest secrets because, of course, um, the very biggest, the very juiciest secrets, people are never, um, people in the right um, positions are never going to entrust those secrets to anything remotely electrical because they know they know okay. that they know that everything 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 can be hacked Hacked, everything can be penetrated if you start from that assumption that working premise that no matter what they say to you no matter how impossible it is to um you know crack or whatever and it's the most sophisticated encrypted this that and the other if however you start from the the premise that yeah that that all sounds great however (laughs) i don't trust it then then you're on safer ground. And what do you do with that secret, whatever the secret is? Again, you keep it locked in your head. Um, and that's where people like me come along. So human intelligence, the business of identifying the right people um, and trying to obtain the secrets that those people have, that is time immemorial. That will always, always go on. And it remains as much today as, as ever. Um that said, I mean, particularly pertinent for your listeners, I, I do not take away the um, fact that um, you know, cybercrime and attacks from cyber, that that is on the increase. And of course, it affects us all, me included, in our day-to-day lives. And so we must be very, very aware of that and very attuned to that and take all the necessary precautions. Well said. Thank you so much for that answer. Very well said. And then, you know, I'm going to ask you this. I don't know if you, you, you can speak to this. I mean, I know you can, but I don't know if you will. <laughs> So everyone tends to look at the usual suspects for anti-Western intelligence operations, such as China, Russia, and Iran. What countries are not on the radar as much, but pose a threat to the West? Well, this is, um, you know, this is the, the big question, really, isn't it? Because we, we and, and in, in the intelligence community, and it's worth, by the way, um, reiterating that the UK and the, and the, at the US uh, have always always had the closest closest allegiance when it comes to the secret world, um, but always very aware that the, the the spark or the threat will not necessarily come directly or obviously from, as you describe them, the usual suspects. It can be you know a, a spark elsewhere, something that flares up that suddenly escalates and draws in the big powers or the big big state actors. Um, and so it's constantly trying to keep um, on top of the other sort of shifting sands of planet Earth and, and what's going on and what potentially could tip the balance one way or t'other um, in terms of um, where the world is at any one particular point. And so, for example, without getting too bogged down in, in current affairs, but for example, if we look right now, um, yes, the, all eyes are on both Russia and Iran. China, to a slightly lesser extent, um, the, the threat from China is obvious, but it's primarily economic stroke cyber. But the, you know, look at those, the, the, uh, the Iran and, and Russia threats. But then we're also seeing other things that could massively escalate at the Middle East, obviously, um, particularly in Israel-Gaza. 
Um, um, but also we're looking at what's going on in the Red Sea right now, what's going on in places like Yemen and, and elsewhere. Um, and if we're not careful, um, but trust me, we are careful. <laughs> we are all over this. But if we as a populace are not careful, suddenly we might just turn on the news one day and just think, where on earth did that come from? Didn't see it coming. So we have to be very, very careful with just thinking it's okay for watching the right countries who are watching the right states and all this that the other as long as they're peaceful and not doing too much it's okay it's possibly not from there that the problem will start gotcha wow all right thank you thank you great great answers great answers here very cool all right so so next one for you matthew um alan duell so i'm sure you're familiar with the former director of the predecessor to the cia the office of strategic services yep what he, he highlighted in one of his books that the American intelligence apparatus strength, in contrast to closed systems like the USSR, lies in the fact that being an open society with immigration is not a weakness, but rather a strength. Now, this is because it allows the importation of individuals from various countries who can provide the cultural and linguistic understanding that is necessary to penetrate the systems of America's adversaries. However, the weaknesses do you perceive in Western democracies and open societies when dealing with centralized governments? How do you propose addressing these weaknesses? Oh my goodness, me, Justin! You do you do talking about posing things that you do pose some some very very big questions. So hats off to you for that. It's uh, <laughs> it is a very big thing. We must we must have a starting point, and our starting point really must be our principles. Um, and um, for you, know, you and I, our principles will be founded, whatever our political you know, beliefs are, but ultimately it will be founded on the principle of democracy and, and freedoms therein. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, th- this is the world that we want to live in. These are the countries that we want to live yes. in. Um, and you know, it's the life that we want to lead, lead and, and the belief that, that, that we have and, and the freedoms therein. And within that dynamic, of course, yes, there are downsides to that i mean you know the, the of course if one lives in a totalitarian regime then one can impose anything one likes including things like immigration and uh, demographic makeup and even back in in china and chairman mao's day back in down to things like how many kids you have how many children you know right. so one can go as extreme as one likes in a totalitarian situation but for us in a democratic, uh, principled, democratic um, structure, we must ex- expect freedom of movement of people, um, you know, um, diversity, um, and multiculturalism, and variety, all that comes with this. And, and what a wonderful thing that is. It poses problems as ever um, uh, and challenges on occasion, not least with... Um, you know, crime and, and um, you know, cultural antagonisms and things like that. But, you know, we, we move forward. We overcome them and uh, we become we become the people of our country and then, and then we <laughs> do the job as best we can. And so when it comes to things like espionage, and it is very, very true, the, the statement, because, of course, then as if you're a CIA officer, and I know CIA, former CIA officers very well and worked very well with them, extremely decent uh, lovely talented individuals uh, but of course they, they benefit hugely from um 
working for an organization that is part of a country that represents the values that I've just mentioned, because it means that they can operate and navigate their way through the world. Um, One of the problems, particularly in the days of the USSR, and it's still somewhat relevant today, and in Russia, because the mentality is still there. One of the problems they had in the guise of the KGB, for example, was they were completely fish out of water the moment they stepped over the border of Russia into the outside world because they'd no experience of it, no exposure to it, no understanding of it beyond propaganda and such like that. And so can you imagine being a KGB officer trying to, um, you know, infiltrate the States or, or London or whatever? It would be a huge problem for them yeah. as individuals because they don't come from that world. Don't they? No, no way for them to embrace it um, in the same way that uh, you know, our respective countries and uh, intelligence offices therein can do so. Very good. Very, very good. Awesome. I want to shift to uh, something different now, Matthew. Let's talk about what you, what you currently do, something I know that you're very passionate about. Um, obviously, you, you've authored many books and uh, you currently um, do mentorship as well for aspiring authors. Uh, let's let's get into that. Um, t- tell me about it. Yeah, it, it's as you say. I've, I've um, written fourteen novels um, during the last twelve, thirteen years, and uh, it's a full time um, job for me. And uh, it was really about two years ago. I had a, I decided to do for an experiment, run a six week masterclass in in the part of the UK that I, I live in, and it really was an experiment because. I didn't know if I'd like it. I didn't know if it would work and all the rest of it. But my ambition, my intention was really to give something back um, to individuals who really wanted to write a novel or were dreaming of writing a novel but just needed some some help um, in terms of how to go about it and the inspiration uh, and all the rest of it. And I ran this course, and to my delight, uh, um, I loved it. Um, it, was, it was a wonder for me, an absolute delight for me, to see the glint in their eyes and the spring in their step when the, the, sort awesome. of during the course thinking the realization w- within them to think I could actually do this, you know, this is it. And, you know, so I, I did that. And then um, since then I, I've been sort of finessing that. And, uh, and so, uh, yes, I currently run um, six week masterclasses, face to face in group masterclasses, and also do um, digital 10 hour um mentoring one-to-one mentoring programs for people who are working on novels and really need um, expert advice on that and for me it's um, it's one of many projects that I, I do within my world um, but it's possibly the one I'm most passionate about because it really yes. I know it sounds a bit cheesy but it really is me giving something back and it's it's lovely to see people coming through and, and it reminds me of where I was sort of 12 13 years ago and uh, yeah. you know the sort of um, the, the joy of being on the start of that wonderful writing odyssey. Um, so yes, that's that's something that uh, I, I do within within my current uh, current world right now. Yeah, I can I can feel the passion in your voice. Uh, I can only imagine some of the experiences that you've been fortunate to have in life, and you've been very blessed and gifted with with an incredible life and working for MI6 and traveling the world. So I I, I understand that it's it's very important to give back because you you've lived a life uh, that that many could only dream of, right? You as you said, you're this there's this young man in his 20s at university and you felt as if you were accepted to the world's most exclusive club so um 
you know. Oh, but I, I do to... have I do have to pick you up on one thing there though a little bit though because okay. it's it's yeah. uh, it's um you know it's sort of, you know in a very nice way hopefully because it's it's sort of full circle a little bit to to what we were just speaking about with my my book um, mentorships in, in as much as I always think about my sort of lead into MI six but you know the odd way it all happens and and that I described and but really for me it started in childhood with books really because it was pre the internet pre mobile phones all of that kind of stuff and i grew up in a relatively rural lovely idyllic but relatively rural and and um uneventful part of the uk and uh, but i had fire in my belly and and for me sort of secondhand bookstores were my portal oh, wow. to the outside yes. world the the world yeah. of mystery and intrigue and adventure yeah. and all of that so i would devour books as a youngster and uh, that really sort of fueled my thing, and I, and I think within that process, at some point, I must have read some spy novels or something like that. And so, <laughs> you know, so so I, when people say, "Okay," it's sort of you know, it's a chicken and egg, really. But I, I think, yeah, there is a sort of continuum to my life, really, and and a lot of it does start with books and and that sort of passion for, ultimately, a passion really for um, not ex- not accepting. A dull life. I, I think you know oh, we, wow. we we should sort of go out. So and, good, you know. Never sort of just settle for. But you know, whatever we do in life. Uh, all right, I've got a interesting, you know, um, unusual background. But irrespective of whatever we do in life, you know, just get up in the day and, and just think, oh yeah, can I do something interesting or see the world slightly differently and do stuff because uh, I think the you know, the world's a better place a place for that. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And then that's one of the reasons, Matthew, why I do this podcast. You know, I started this in 2020. And if you would ask me prior to then, would I ever start a podcast, do anything like this, where I'm sharing my voice to the world and giving my opinions and having uh, phenomenal guests like yourself on my show, I would have said no. But, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, at the end of the day, it was a fear there. Right. But um, I faced that fear head on. And, uh, you know, uh, the good father, the good Lord put something very special on the other side of that fear, something yep. greater than I could ever imagine. And uh, the show's done very well. And uh, um, it, it's been a been quite the experience. So I, I can I definitely understand what you mean for me personally was stepping outside of my comfort zone. But, yeah, that, that was my way of saying I, I don't want to live a dull life anymore because that's what I was doing just in the rat race, right? Doing the nine to five. Yeah. And, but, uh, and then as you say, and then you, ha- you have the courage, whatever day that was to actually say, right, I'm going to do it. And, and no doubt uh, if there's anything like my world doing sort of TV interviews and all the rest of it, no doubt that those first few sessions of doing podcasts must've been very nerve wracking and all the oh, rest of it. Oh but, my goodness, but what yes. do you do in those situations? It's always put one foot in front of the other. Just keep right. going, keep going, right. keep going, keep going. Of course, lots of people fall by the wayside in the, in the process, but it's having the, the courage just to keep going and keep sort of pursuing it, I think. And, uh, you know, as long as you have that eye on your end game of thinking, no, this is good, this is fun, this is what I want to do, then it's worth the chase, isn't it? Oh, without doubt, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Well, Matthew, this has been such a pleasure. Um, I, I do have one last question for you, and this is something I ask each and every guest that comes on the Hidden Gateway podcast. And we'd like to ask you to leave our listeners with what I like to call a token of love. That's simply something that you feel that they need to hear in this very moment as they continue their journeys. Token of love, I think one thing that I do draw on my background um, from is um, I would encourage people, no no matter what circumstances they're in, um, no matter what plights they have, problems, all the rest of it, 
always to remember, um, history always repeats itself. Everything we're seeing today, for example, has happened um, previously in history and will happen in the future. It's the human condition. It's the way we are. Um, but things are progressing. Things always progress in the right direction. And one thing day to day is as much as possible, always remember that uh, having a sense of humor um, can get us a long, long way. So always keep reminding oh. yourself to to dig deep into that sense of humor and always, as much as possible, try to see the funny side of things. Not always I easy, I know, but try to see the funny side of things. Love it. Very good. And, hey, one more for you. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you would like to share with the audience? No, but it's been an absolute pleasure. And, and uh, please forgive me if I've said anything about my time in espionage that's too technical or too jargony. That's certainly not my intention. I try to make it as accessible as possible. But it's been an absolute pleasure to be on your show. And thank you very much indeed. Oh, Matthew, you're good. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here on the show. And to our audience, I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Uh, Matthew is, is without doubt one of the most interesting people we've had on here very wise very intelligent and has had amazing, amazing career in life. So um, remember, as always, to stay connected with us at thehiddengateway.com. If you want to speak with us, shoot us an email like a lot of you do at support at thehiddengateway.com. And thank you, as always, for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. Now, this will conclude this week's episode. Until next time, stay positive, stay questioning, be love, and be free. The Hidden Gateway, out.